You can turn in your Bible to John 18, look at verses 33 through 40 today. Um, we're, we're skipping ahead. We're not carrying on with our uh, sermon series as usual. Um, there was an election this week, and people felt stuff about it. It left a lot of people feeling like things are pretty precarious, actually, and uh, I think that means that apparently people had a lot riding on it. People had a lot riding on it. Either, uh, either way it went, we'd have half the country feeling like something foundational, something precious was in jeopardy, actually. Uh, people are right now, they're appalled, they're indignant, um, people are depressed, people are in a panic. Um, you'd, you'd think someone had threatened their gods. I think that's actually a pretty good description of what's happened, because in this broken world that we live in, politics and religion, humanly speaking, politics and religion are pretty much the same thing. They're both approaches to fixing the world. They're both methods for fixing the broken world, especially fixing humanity. Um, according to my perception of what's broken and the resources that I have uh, to bear, the power that I have in order to address what I perceive to be the problem. Right? People come together around a shared vision of what's wrong with the world. They come together around a shared vision of the problem and a shared vision of the solution. We know what's really wrong here, and we know what will fix it, and we're the ones who are going to do it. Um, and groups that have differing visions for those things will find themselves in conflict with each other, deep conflict, um, to conflict to varying degrees, but um, in the case of our society right now, we're discovering that it's a rather deep conflict. Uh, and these are characteristics of um, not just religion. You'd think this was religious uh, activity that we we're seeing, but it's, it's also politics. Politics and religion, both taboo topics. I know we're not supposed to talk about those things around the dinner table. We're going to do that today, uh, because the Christian church in its better moments has shattered these categories. In its better moments, the church has shattered the categories of politics and religion. In ancient Rome, for example, Christians were considered atheists because they didn't play by the world's rules for religion. They didn't have idols. They didn't have visible temples and gods and uh, things that were understandable to the rest of the world at the time. Right? So, so Christians were labeled atheists irreligious, because they're not playing by religion's rules, right? And they were also viewed as a political threat because their confession was Jesus Christ is Lord, which sounds like treason or maybe anarchy, because it implied that Caesar was not Lord. The confession that Jesus Christ is Lord implies that Caesar is not. So, um, so they were viewed as a threat to the political stability of the Roman Empire, they're not playing by the regular rules of politics and religion. And this is true in very important ways. Jesus is the true king over all kings. And that has significance for us at times like this. His kingdom is not like Rome or any other kingdom on the face of the earth at any time throughout history anywhere. His kingdom is not like these others. His vision of what's wrong, the brokenness of humanity, and his solution, his fix for the problem, 
His methods are all unlike those of the, the kingdoms of this world, the political systems of this world. His kingship is a whole new paradigm, and we need to see that, and we need to embrace it, and we need to live in it as the new humanity, as, um, as the scripture calls us, citizens of his heavenly kingdom. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, there are ways in which um, we just cannot even perceive your reality, your truth, your kingdom. Uh, We can't see it for what it is because it doesn't appear to be like anything that we're familiar with. And so we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see yourself and your truth and your kingdom as we consider your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So at this point in history, Israel, Judea, is under um, Roman rule. Uh, It's Roman-occupied territory. And Pilate is the Roman representative. He's the prefect or governor, and he's in Jerusalem. So the Jewish high council, the the Jewish leaders of the Jewish nation, uh, the Sanhedrin, they were sort of the religious political representatives of the occupied people, the Jews. And their plan, uh, they, they, they had serious problems with Jesus, right? This, this is something we're already beginning to discover in our walkthrough of, um, of John's gospel, but it really comes to a head here at um, the last week of his life and the last day of it. Um, the, the Sanhedrin had serious problems with Jesus because he was a threat to their authority. They had a position of authority in the nation, And he was a threat to that, so they had him arrested, and their plan was to throw him under the Roman bus, so to speak, uh, to charge him with sedition against Rome. Because Roman rule tolerated no rivals. This empire tolerated no rivals to their power. Caesar's claim to power was absolute. 
he was going to be worshipped, if anybody was going to be worshipped as the Son of God. That's, that's not hyperbole. Um, they thought he was the Son of God, they treated him like the Son of God, and they worshipped him. Caesar's claim to power was absolute. So if, if Rome heard that this Jesus fellow was claiming to be king, then Jesus would be dealt with. He would be summarily executed for treason. It was a good political strategy on the part of the Jews. It worked. It worked. When Jesus and Pilate meet, it is a clash of kingdoms. What we see in our passage is a clash of kingdoms. Jesus is on trial before Pilate in Roman-occupied Israel, but really, really, Pilate is on trial before the king of kings. This encounter is so important that, I mean, Pilate makes it into the Christian creed, the Apostles' Creed, the, the universal statement of our essential beliefs about God and about our salvation. Pilate's in there. So it's important. It's significant. His name is there. And, and that's because he represents the bad guys. That's what it boils down to. He's a public representative of humanity. He's a public representative of fallen humanity. In fact, that's what all political leaders are. All political leaders in this world are public representatives of a broken humanity. Pilate was a manipulative, self-seeking, power-hungry, cowardly, political figure. In other words, he's one of us. That describes us. He imagines himself to be what the first Adam wanted to be. He imagines himself to be what the first Adam wanted to be, the self-made master of his domain and the judge of God himself. And in this, Pilate represents the old humanity. He represents the sinful humanity. We all share that nature. And he acted on our behalf with regard to Jesus Christ. His historical actions as a public representative have not just historical significance for that time, they have profound spiritual significance for all of us because Pilate had a vision for what power was. Pilate had a vision of power and he sought power and he worked to maintain power and sometimes in order to maintain or, or advance in this kind of power, he had people killed like Jesus, like the Lord of life himself in the name of peace, right? To keep the peace politically to keep national stability, to keep power. According to his vision, he had Jesus killed. Pilate understood power in the same way we've all understood it since Adam. And that is to say um, he had a vision of power which was satanic. Because uh, the serpent fed Adam and Eve lies about what real power was. The serpent is the one who persuaded us that power meant being able to take what you want, being able to get what you want, to achieve what you want. That's the lie we've believed about power. Adamic power is the ability to get what I want for myself, the ability to get what I feel is important to me, sometimes to us if we're on the same team, but really to me. 
And sometimes we call it authority. Sometimes we call it influence. But it amounts to the same thing. And in the realm of politics, we're just doing it collectively. We're doing, we're exercising that kind of power. We're pursuing that kind of power collectively. Worldly politics, like the stuff we saw come to a culmination this week with the presidential election to the office of the most powerful person in the world. (laughs) Worldly politics is the application of Adamic power to problems that entered the world when Adam grabbed for such power. Right? Politics is broken humanity trying to fix itself. In Pilate, we have that paradigm exposed for its bankruptcy, for its complete failure. In Pilate, we see the failure of human power. In Pilate, we see the failure of political power. Pilate couldn't do the right thing while maintaining this power. He couldn't do it. He wanted to release Jesus. But he caved under the pressure, under the political pressure, and he ended up murdering the Prince of Peace to keep the peace for for the sake of national stability. The life of Jesus Christ was less important to him than his own position, than his ability to achieve what he thought he should achieve, what he thought he deserved to achieve. And he even tried to deflect the blame from himself by washing his hands of the matter, right? He actually literally did that and declared it out loud. I wash my hands of this. His blood is on your head. Um, but his, his hands are still red. That's a joke. But that's what sinful humanity does. We get ourselves into a mess because of our sin. And then we blame shift. And we come up with solutions that are no solutions. And we've only ever had bad options for kings, for presidents, for people in power, for political leaders. We've only ever had bad options. Our political leaders operate with the wrong paradigm of power. They can't see what's really wrong with the world. They certainly can't fix it. The Old Testament in Psalm 146 says, Put not your trust in princes. Because trusting princes inevitably leads to Pontius murdering Jesus. So, what does our creed highlight about this encounter? I mean, we talk about the fact that Pontius Pilate gets mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. It's very significant to have your name mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. What does it highlight about this encounter, this showdown between Jesus and Pilate, between the new man and the old man? What does it highlight? It highlights that our Lord, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, our Lord suffered under Pontius Pilate. Our Lord suffered under political power. Our Lord suffered under this version of power. We might think that he put his kingship on hold so that he could suffer under the kingship of others. He hit the pause button on his authority while he suffered under Pontius Pilate, waiting until 
that was all over in order to take up his power again. But that's not true at all. Jesus' suffering under Pilate demonstrates his true power, which is so fundamentally different from our conceptions of power that we have a hard time even recognizing it. We don't even recognize what Jesus' power is, what it means, how it displays itself in the world. We don't even recognize it. He says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. That means it should be very difficult for people who are of this world to even perceive it, to even understand it. It is so different from the systems and paradigms of power in this world. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. If I were a ruler like the rulers of this world, I would use my power to sacrifice others so that I could avoid suffering. But that's not what my power is. That's not what my kingdom's like. My power means I suffer under your false power. My lordship means I suffer under Pontius Pilate. Leslie Newbegin said, Jesus will not deny kingship. I mean, you know, Pilate says, so you are a king. Well, I guess if you're going to put it in those terms, right? He will not deny kingship, nor will he accept Pilate's idea of kingship. The prisoner is talking a language which is not the language of politics. This is not the language of politics. Our Lord doesn't play by these rules. Jesus suffered false accusations. He suffered the destruction of his reputation. He suffered public humiliation, unjust punishment, and mindless cruelty under false power, under Pilate, under his false power. And this was the expression of his true power. This is the shape of his power. He was willing to suffer, and he did it, and that's power. The Son of God condescended to submit to corrupt authority, to submit himself to the corrupt authority of Adam's race as exercised by their public representative at the time, Pilate, even to the point of death. He suffered under us, the true king, suffered under usurpers. And the beauty of it is that he suffered for us. He did it for us. His willingness to suffer is the willingness of love. And that's what his power is. Christ's suffering reveals a God who is willing to take the pain of hostility in order to remove the hostility. Christ's suffering reveals a God who is willing to let our rebellion wash over him so that he could raise us to his right hand in glory. And this is the amazing thing, that, that people who are in a mad scramble for the wrong kind of power, usurpers like us, that his goal, his plan all along, the work of his redemption, and, and the goal of history is to take usurpers who are scrambling for power and give them real power and give them real glory and give them and share with them all authority in heaven and on earth. To share it with people who would steal it from him. That's his power. 
He didn't set aside, he didn't set aside his divine authority in order to suffer under our corrupt authority. His suffering reveals precisely the shape of his divine authority as, as he says, the authority to lay down his life for his friends, for the sake of love. Jesus' new humanity comes up against uh, and opposes the old humanity and loses. His humanity loses. But actually, the victory belongs to him because his is the true humanity made in God's image. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And our old humanity, in its pursuit of power over and against God, over and against God's Son, over against all of God's ways, our humanity stands self-condemned for having opposed him. And now, after his death and his resurrection, the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, as the creed continues, as the scriptures make clear, he ascended into heaven where he is seated on God's own throne with him. The God-man Jesus Christ is seated on God's own throne, and now his kind of power is definitive of true power. Now his kingship determines the course of the whole world. Christians believe that. The church believes that. The church has always believed that. His kingdom is the kingdom for us. We are citizens of heaven first. Which means his kind of power is our vision of true power. We adopt his paradigm, his vision of what the the real problem with the world is. We adopt and embrace his solution and his methods for restoration, for fixing what's broken in the world. In his sovereignty, as he's the king of kings and lord of lords, he raises up and casts down princes of the earth, and our hearts don't rise and fall with them. This is the one truth that lifts up our hearts is that Jesus Christ has already ruled over all the nations for more than 1,700 years before there even was a United States of America. And his dominion shall have no end, even though the United States of America may have an end. Karl Barth, this is one of the quotes at the beginning of the bulletin. Uh, It's a quote you've probably seen from me before because it's one of my favorites. Whatever prosperity or defeat may occur in our space, whatever may become and pass away, there is one constant, one thing that remains and continues, this sitting of his at the right hand of God the Father. So we, and by we I mean not America, don't conflate the church with America. I mean the church when I say we. We Submit to the authorities that he puts in place. But we don't fear standing against them whenever it's necessary for the sake of his kingdom. Because our allegiance is to him. We are concerned for justice to be done in the world. But we aren't bound to the political avenues that the world permits us to pursue real justice. We see what's wrong with the world, 
We see what's wrong with it. We see that there are realities of racism and sexism and abortion and economic oppression. We see that there are real problems of fear and disdain and the demonization of people who don't agree with you. We see those problems and we confess them as our own. It's not just problems with those people over there. What's wrong with the world is not just them out there. We see these problems in the world because we've seen them in our own hearts and we confess them as our own sins and we bring them to our King for His forgiveness, for restoration, for His healing, for His peace, and we ask for His grace that we might be able to engage with others graciously. We're not impressed by those who wield Adamic power. We're not terrified by those who wield that kind of power, even if their power enables them to do to us what Pilate did to Jesus. Pilate took away everything from Jesus in one sense. And our leaders could take away everything from us, but that doesn't mean we would fear them. Our king was not afraid in the face of Pilate's power. And he didn't try to outdo Pilate on Pilate's terms, right? He didn't try to wrest that power from him because he abused his authority. He didn't try to wield that power or that influence, uh, not to save himself, but even for the sake of the oppressed. He didn't say, no, Pilate, you're doing it totally wrong. Let me have your job, and I'll show you how to do it right. Give me your position of authority and influence. Give me that kind of power, and I'll show you what to do with it. He didn't do that. The world was just as broken then as it is now, and Jesus' strategy was not a political one then. He said in verse 37, For this purpose, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Right, this is his purpose, and this is our purpose, to bear witness to a kingdom that is not of this world. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. Its politics aren't like the politics of this world. And he came to bear witness to that, to that kingdom that's already come in the person of the king, a kingdom that is coming, and that when it comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the kingdom that he came to talk about, to proclaim, to bear witness to, not just with his words, but with all of his life and with his death. And we testify to that kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and as our lives are given in love to others, whether they're our friends, whether they're our allies, whether they're our enemies. We don't testify to Christ's kingdom by reaching for the wrong kind of power, for the power of worldly kingdoms. I'm not saying Christians may not participate in politics at whatever level. You could give a lot of caveats about all of that. I'm not saying that. Just don't make the mistake in thinking this is how we're going to establish Christ's kingdom on earth, getting caught up in the politics of the world. 
Don't get your hopes up and don't despair, alternatively, because of princes and politics. Henry Nouwen um, has a great book, In the Name of Jesus. I'll give you a bit of a quote from him. The temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. We keep hearing from others as well as saying to ourselves that having power, provided it's used in the service of God and of your fellow human beings, is a good thing. With this rationalization, crusades took place. Inquisitions were organized. Indians were enslaved. Positions of great influence were desired. Episcopal palaces, splendid cathedrals, and opulent seminaries were built, and much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in. Every time we see a major crisis in the history of the church, we always see that a major cause of rupture is the power exercised by those who claim to be followers of the poor and powerless Jesus. Power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Love is the true power. And it's the hard work. And our king loved us. And he laid down his life for us. And that was what his authority looked like. He had the power to do that. And when we as the church come together around him, around our king, around Jesus Christ, when we share his meal and we share our lives together through faith in him, when we repent of our participation in the world's power agenda, when we move out in love, laying down our lives in testimony to his kingdom, when we live out his new humanity everywhere we go, in every relationship, this is the deep revolution that the world needs. This is the path to real change and sure hope. His kingdom is not of this world. It is quite different, and it is infinitely better. So let's live like we believe that's true. Amen. Let's pray. Father, our hearts have gotten caught up in um, the political turmoil of this week and and really the last year or more. Um, We get blinded by the world's version of power. We think that um, if we had some of this kind of power, we could turn the world to be a better place. And uh, this is just not your agenda. This is not the way your kingdom works. And we pray that you would help us even now to submit to you, to bend our knee to you, to confess that you, Jesus Christ, are Lord, and that you would help us to see what that really means, not that we would be um, people who want to depart from the world, uh, people who want to have nothing to do with the world, but people who approach the world as ambassadors of your kingdom, which is not like the kingdoms of this world. We pray that you would give us the faith to do that, that you would give us the the strength and the true power to live as your followers in this world, to not trust in and rely upon princes and political systems, but to put our trust in you, to put our hope in the, the sure coming of your kingdom that you will establish on the earth when you return. We look forward to that day when you make everything right in the moment of, uh, in, in, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment. You set all things right, all things that are broken with us, because you set back our relationship with God the way it's always meant to be, a relationship characterized by true love. We pray that you would help that love um, 
uh, infuse our lives and our relationships now, and that by um, making us to be people who live in your image and love like you love, that you would uh, bring your kingdom into the world through your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.